of um, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He thought about the, uh, the Palm Sunday picture um, this morning. And this evening, we're thinking about Jesus when he goes into the temple and he confronts people there uh, in quite a startling way. So I'm going to read this time from Mark's Gospel. And I'm reading chapter 11. And I'm reading from verse 15. So Mark 11, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you, you have made it into a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Father God, we pray that uh, you will open up your word to us this evening, that you will speak to us by your spirit, that if there are things that we need to hear, you will speak clearly and we will understand you well. Father God, we want to open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to you and allow you to do a work in us, each of us, this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to share with you first, before um, I get to talk about this a little bit, I'd like to share with you a uh, reflection that has been provided by um, somebody from the Northwest Baptist Association, I think it's NWBA, um, and it's a bit of a, a take on this story from the perspective of a uh, one of the traders so if i get the technology right hopefully you should be able to see this just trying to think where i'll find it it's disappeared Hold on. this is could take me a moment okay There we go. Right. What kind of a day have I had? Oh, don't even ask. I mean, it stands about fine. I got down to the courtyard market, nice and early. Beautiful morning it was. Clear blue skies. And I get a brilliant pitch right by the temple gate. I got my straw set up in time for the early birds. Okay, can you hear anything? Going fine. Yeah. Okay. You know what it's like? You get enough stock shifted during festival season. You're set up for the rest of the year. Anyway, there I was minding my own business, doing a nice steady trade, and then suddenly there's this almighty commotion. I didn't think much of it at first. You know how some of these youngsters are. Passover always fires them up. Then they start picking an argument with some roaming guards, and they go and get themselves arrested. Keep your head down, Simeon, I says to myself. You've got a family to look after. Watch your store and keep out of trouble. I could hear this guy shouting from across the courtyard. I assumed it was one of the Roman officers at first, you know, barking out his orders, giving people what's what. But then I hear what he's saying. My father's house, you've turned it into a den of thieves, built to be a place of prayer, and you've turned it into a bazaar. Well, that's not the sort of thing a Roman officer's going to say. 
They couldn't care less what we do in the temple courts, so long as we cause no trouble. And then I saw them. Jesus of Nazareth, they say his name is. And before I could even try to make him see reason, he just picks up my trading table and tips it into the floor. Well, the lambs went running in one direction, the dove cages shattered on the cobbles, and before I knew it, my old weak stock has just disappeared. Oh, it was all I could do to grab the takings. And I then went rolling across the floor and got picked up by the beggars. And then he moved on to the next door, and then the next, shouting the same thing. You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Oh, he even had a go at old Benjamin. I mean, he's worked that picture as long as I can remember. And then he was gone, off into the temple as bold as brass, and he spent the day arguing with the priests and the Pharisees. I'm telling you, that guy is going to get himself into serious trouble. He's going to get us all into serious trouble if he carries on like that. All we're doing is trying to make the best of things, trying to make a decent living and give people a bit of festival to take their minds off things. We don't want these idealists coming along and upsetting things. But what about me? What's a man going to feed his family with when his main trading stock has been sent flying across the cobbles? House of prayer. House of prayer indeed. Lovely idea, but that's not going to put bread on the table. So just a, a different, a slightly different take um, on that. Let me just turn that off. Okay. Um, so a take on the, the the familiar story there, but just giving you a sense of this the disruption that happened when Jesus walked into the temple and began to do what he did. Um, bear with me for a moment. I want to show you this. Okay, technology, oh, there we are. Is it going to work? Possibly not tonight. We'll keep trying. So we have Jesus in the temple um, disrupting everything that's going on there. Um, and I know this is familiar to many of us. I know that you're familiar with the story and possibly even familiar with the background and the setup, the whole context for this. But in case any of you um, haven't come across some of these things before, I'll, I'll just sort of paint a bit of a picture for you. Um, because in this place, uh, this temple is supposed to be the epicenter, the, the, the focal point of the nation's worship of God. It's true that out in the provinces, um, there's already uh, not temple worship, but synagogue worship, and um, scrolls are read, the, the Torah and the teachings of the rabbis are read and discussed. Worship happens in the provinces too. But the centre of the worshipping life of Israel is still there in the temple at Jerusalem. And for everybody in Israel, at least three times a year, they were to make pilgrimage and travel all the way from wherever they lived um, to the temple in Jerusalem for the festivals. And so this is the festival of Passover, one of those times when people traveled in from all over. Now, part of the um, worshiping life of the, uh, of the people was it was about sacrifice, animal sacrifice specifically. And that meant 
that everybody had to be able to provide a suitable sacrifice. And by suitable, I mean, mean it can't have any defect. There can't be anything wrong with it. Um, the, the type of animal is prescribed by law and provision is made for those who can't afford uh, a larger animal like a goat or a sheep. Um, and you'll remember that Jesus' parents, being poor themselves, they brought two doves when it was time to have Jesus um, uh, Jesus presented at the temple when he was very, very small. They were allowed to bring two doves and that was a sign that they were actually from a poor peasant family. And that was the, um, uh, that was the allowance for a poorer family. Now, it's, I mention that because it is interesting to note that in the description of Jesus overturning things and disrupting life, uh, merchandising life in the temple, two things are mentioned specifically. One is overturning the tables of the money changers, and the other is overturning the benches of the dove sellers. And it's the dove sellers who will be selling to the poor. Hold that thought, because that's quite significant. Now, the reason why um, animals are being sold at all is because you imagine that you've got to travel all the way from, the, from Galilee in the north and several days journey to, to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to make your offering, your sacrifice. And you've got children to look after, you've got older parents to, to help along the journey. The chances of bringing an animal and bring it all the way through that uh, treacherous journey intact without it going lame, without it getting um, damaged in any way or poorly, the chances of that happening are fairly small. And you simply wouldn't run the risk because it's, it's a costly thing to do. So by way of providing a mechanism for those from the outlying territories to still be able to come and worship God by bringing a sacrifice, this, this uh, practice grew up whereby they could buy a perfect acceptable animal at the temple to be able to then present it for sacrificial worship. So in many ways the idea of selling animals at the temple was a good and laudable idea ensuring that the the sacrifices were the best and that everybody from however far away you traveled you would still be able to present an acceptable sacrifice to Jehovah. So it, it's a good idea but it's a good idea gone wrong by this point. The other thing uh, that you need to know about is the money. Now, the currency of the day, and I literally mean currency, is the, the Roman money, the Roman denarii, the, the Roman coinage that has the image of Caesar on it. And there's something about images that is abhorrent to the Jewish understanding of of worship. You remember that the, one of the commandments is that we shall have no images. There shall be no other gods and we will not make any images of God. Now, particularly at that time where the cult of Caesar, the deification of Caesar, the encouragement um, that we should be, or they should be considering Caesar to be like a God, meant that the very image of Caesar on the coin was something that they wanted absolutely nothing to do with in terms of the worship of the one true God. Again, a really laudable uh, intent. And so to keep it separate, to keep this Gentile coinage, coinage this, this um, symbol, this symbol of an idol out of, out of the temple and out of the people's worship, they created a currency just for the temple 
the temple coinage. And so when you brought your coins, which you had earned and saved up at home over the year or over the preceding months, you brought that to the temple, you had to change it into temple money in order to then use it to buy a sacrifice to make, uh, to buy an animal to, to then make your sacrifice. And so in that way, they're keeping the, uh, the unclean, they're keeping the Gentile um, money out of the worship of God. They're keeping it separate, keeping it holy, they would think. Um, so again, a good idea, a good idea to try and keep things holy, keep things honoring God, uh, making way and provision for people of all sorts, from all sorts of places to come and be involved in the life of worship. All good, except that it's clearly not good if it gets Jesus this angry, if he is going to be this disruptive and he's going to say what he says about the worship that is going on in the temple. Now, the fact that he calls it, uh, that they have made it a den of thieves, gives us the biggest clue to begin with. He calls it a den of thieves, which makes us realize that there has to be something dishonest going on here. There's something exploitative about what is happening, the practice that is, is going on. Whether it's, uh, whether it's denying people the chance to bring their own animal or uh, any animal they've, they've bought outside the, the Jerusalem courts, or whether it is uh, using a very extortionate rate of exchange or a huge commission on top of the exchange rate so that those people who are bringing money to change find they're out of pocket over and over again and that the temple authorities are the ones getting rich on all of this. Perhaps it's something to do with that. We don't know the exact details of what was going on, but we know the effect it had on Jesus and that means it was serious. It was something that was actually undermining the worship of God's people. The idea that people should draw close to God in this place and offer worship unsullied by, um, by so much of the world. It is being undermined and in fact it's being displaced. And I want us to think about that a little bit this, um, this evening because Jesus doesn't just act um, like as a knee-jerk reaction. I don't think that he would have just walked in there and been surprised. He's been to the temple several times before. In fact, probably for his whole life, his family were going to and from with the rest of the, the guys from Galilee. It was part of his routine. He knew what was happening in the temple. He'd had ample opportunity to do this before now. But right now, as he knows he is headed towards a, an almighty clash with the authorities, it's as if this is yet another ramping up of the tension, of the conflict in preparation for what will happen. Perhaps he knows his days are numbered. Maybe he realizes this visit to Jerusalem is my last. This is the visit that is going to lead me to the cross. And so he doesn't have another opportunity. So he grasps this with both hands. And he does something quite extraordinary. I mean, we would assume he absolutely lost it, that he was having a breakdown, that he was just had anger issues, whatever it is. We would be utterly shocked if we'd been there, I think. But such is God's reaction or God's uh, opinion of extortion, of hypocrisy and of abuse and ex exploitation, particularly of the poor. And if you look at... Uh, what God has to say throughout the Old Testament 
about the poor. You realize that he is a God whose heart is for the poor. And when Jesus sees particularly the, the poor being exploited and being held at arm's length, being denied access or being charged over the odds to be able to draw close to the God who is for them in every way, this clearly is something rotten at the worshipping heart of Israel. And Jesus, like a, like a surgeon, goes right in there with a scalpel and pulls it out. And he does it in a very dramatic way. This symbol here that you see on the screen, you, you would recognise if, uh, if you play music on the internet, if you have a phone that has a stopwatch, whatever it is, it's the pause button. Because one of the things that I've been thinking about as I've looked at this story is how Jesus manages to create a divine pause. Now, it might not have been quiet. In fact, his actions probably created more chaos rather than less. It wasn't a pause in the sense of a, a quietening down, but it was an interruption, a stopping, if only for a few hours, an absolute stop to the activities of those who were buying and selling and exchanging money. There was a divine pause that was imposed on the people in that moment. Their usual activities, those things that were so abhorrent to Jesus because for the best intentions, perhaps starting out, they had become corrupted and distorted and now were actually actively keeping people and God apart. That had to stop and he created this moment of divine pause. While I was thinking about um, pausing, obviously I was thinking about how at the moment we may not, uh, we may not relish it, we may not welcome it, but in, in many ways it feels like our whole society has had a pause imposed on us. Um, we can't go about life as usual. Many of us are having to adapt to a very different way of working. For some of us it feels busier than ever but for none of us does it feel the same as always and there's something about a divine pause that we need to take notice of um, sabbath is one of those things which i would love to teach on far more i'd love to be able to incorporate far more into my own life but as i'm reading about sabbath that divine pause that was placed there right from the word go um, I realized that actually God's intention for his creation, for, for the world, for the environment, but also mainly for the people that he has created, is that there should be this rhythm of work and pause, work and rest, having a rhythm to life that isn't incessant, that there is a moment when God says stop and we stop. The year of the Jubilee is another divine pause that is ordained by God so that creation, so that the land is restored to, uh, to the original owners, so that um, debts are cancelled, so that the growing division between rich and poor is brought back into alignment, so that the exploitation of the poor, even just by systems and mechanisms, is reduced, that that is brought back into balance. There's a divine pause that's ordained by God. I don't know if you can see this next, but you might need to move uh, your screen around a bit to see these, these other points. But the divine pause 
that I want us to think about is, is actually that. It's about restoring balance. It's not arbitrary. It's not just a, a weird idea. It is actually with the intention of bringing back uh, a balance to creation and to us. It's about centrality of worship. Jesus pauses the activity in the temple courts because there needs to be worship in the temple courts. And when we pause, whether we think about that pause being uh, life now under lockdown, where does worship figure in that pause that has been brought about? Where is worship? And worship in the broadest sense of delighting in God and enjoying his creation and having that wow moment. Where is that in your Sabbath keeping practice? The divine pause allows us time to invest in relationships, um, both with humans, but also with God. And that's an, a central part to this balance, this rhythm that God has ordained. And what Jesus did in the temple courts that day, by bringing in that divine pause, I believe he was trying to also show and create a space wherein relationships relationships can take precedence over money making industry um earning a buck whatever it might be that machine of the worshiping life that had become all about money making and commerce go back to the centrality of worship and the importance of building and investing in relationships wherever there's a divine pause it causes us to recognize our dependency on God. That is to say, we have to trust him if we're to take a divine pause seriously and build it into our lives. Do you remember the, um, the story of the Exodus and the Israelites when they were provided with manna from heaven, this what is it that they were given to eat, and they were to go and collect every morning, only enough for one day, except on Friday, when they were to collect enough for two days, so that they should not have to collect it on Saturday. There wouldn't be any. Even though on the first Saturday, the first Sabbath, some people still went out to look for it, it wasn't there. There was a divine pause. You might think, gosh, that, that took a lot of faith to collect enough for, on Friday and save enough for Saturday, but how much more faith did it take to get to Saturday evening and expect there to be manna once again on Sunday morning? They were utterly dependent on God to provide, and yet he still asked them to pause. And sometimes we get into a situation where we feel we can't stop. We can't get off the treadmill. We have to just keep going and keep going and keep going because somewhere worming into our mind is this idea that it all depends on me. And I know I put my hand up and say I'm guilty of this um, myself. But to actually recognize and adopt and incorporate a divine pause into our life requires trust and requires us to recognize that, no, we're not in control. It doesn't depend on me. It depends on God and trusting him that if you're not to work for one day, if you're not to earn money for one day, if you're to actually rest and enjoy the things that he's given you for one day, Will the world come crashing down around us or will actually God provide and perhaps provide in a special way that we don't get when we just 
carry on head down and keep going and there's something about restoring balance which for god is more than even just us it's about the whole of his creation um which he wants to bring into uh, into a healthy place a, a creation-wide rest a pause to help restore that balance so jesus comes into the temple and he ruptures the flow of the commerce of all that's going on there he presses pause and that it's imposed on them they have to stop doing things the way they were always doing them even if just for a few hours while they round up the animals and they collect up their money and they mend their benches and straighten the tables whatever it is they have a pause i wonder how many of them reflected beyond the panic of lost goods and wares and perhaps lost profit the other issue i think that got jesus really riled was this sense in which the activity of um of the marketplace had actually displaced worship and i don't mean that theoretically i mean that physically if you remember how the temple is has been created and designed right in the center you have the holy of holies the place where god is uh, is there in 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 some sort of powerful way so powerful in fact that only the high priest can go in there and only once a year that's in the very center moving out from there you have the space for the priests where they may go and offer sacrifices and carry out their priestly duties and nobody else may go in that close beyond them beyond that space is the space for the jewish men who could come that bit closer um, and they were able to go and worship there then beyond there we have the courts the precincts the courtyards the spaces for the women and for the gentiles so those who weren't jewish men who were sort of one space removed they were in the outer courts that's where their worship was to take place how easy is it to worship when there are money changers there are queues of people chatting in the marketplace when there's there's animals um moving around bleating and squawking and goodness knows what the actual act of worship was supposed to happen in that place yet the market had encroached on that space so i think in a very real way jesus was angered by the fact that this exploitative practice and this dishonest dealing was not only going on in the temple but it was actually preventing people from being able to carry out their worship to god and it was okay for the jewish men they could move through that space and go into their quiet space and have their time with god but what about the women and what about the gentiles jesus reminds them in very loud a very loud voice that this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations it was always supposed to be for everyone reaching beyond the borders of the israelite community it was supposed to be for everybody but the activities that he disrupts when he comes into the temple are taking place in a space which is preventing others those on the outskirts those on the margins from even participating in worship how dare they how dare they this was God's house for God to meet with his people, 
to meet with women, to meet with Gentiles. And yet that wasn't going to be able to take place to the degree that it should because other things had encroached. And so it's something worth thinking about for us. I don't believe that we intentionally keep anybody out or that any of our activities and our busyness is intended ever to displace worship. But it is worth just thinking about what we do and how we do it to keep in mind whether our practices are displacing worship or keeping people out. We don't want to be bouncers on the door. And we've never operated church in that way. We have people on the doors of the school when we meet there, but they're there to welcome, to show people in and to, to be a friendly face, welcoming them in. Rather than gatekeepers, what, we're, what we expect and what we hope for are doorkeepers. You see, there's a little boy there holding the door open. It's about access. It's about welcome. It's about making it possible for people to come in and experience uh, experience what it is to be in the in the family of God, to share in worship as far as possible, but but it's supposed to be an open door. The question that we have to grapple with now: How do we do this? How do we do this now that we have to move everything into a virtual setting, a, a something at a distance? We are already set at a distance from one another. We are going to have to work very hard to ensure that our practices don't accidentally become gatekeeper practices. How do we keep people being welcomed in who don't have computers and can't access Zoom? That's something that as a leadership we're having to grapple with and think through. How do we expand what we do uh, via technology, via um, social media to reach out? It's it would be a natural response to want to withdraw as a church, to hunker down, to look after each other and stay in a, in a cosy family group. And it is fantastic what has been happening uh, amongst you all, how you've been helping each other out and phoning around and, and running errands. It's been wonderful that the body of God has, has been operating so beautifully together. But the mission of God hasn't gone away just because coronavirus has arrived. The mission of God is that the church of God is there for those who are not yet in the church. And the mission of God remains. There are still many, many people around us who don't have the hope that we have, who are perhaps living in fear because they don't know Jesus. Uh, and the fear of what might happen is filling their minds. There are people who need so desperately to know about Jesus, about the freedom he offers, about the, the new life that he promises us, about the forgiveness of sins. All of that that we have, we have to find new ways to be able to share that and reach out, even while we are stuck at home. It's a huge challenge, but. I don't believe God has set this mission in our hearts and, and called us to this and then just said, oh, but it's OK, don't worry about it for now. I think it is still true. And as a leadership, we would value your prayers immensely as we meet this week and we go on to meet and think through how do we do this? How do we keep reaching out, protecting and loving and caring for those who are in the church family, but nevertheless reaching out? lest we ever become gatekeepers.
bouncers on the door that keep others out. I would hate for Jesus to have to do a cleansing of the temple on us because our activities had displaced worship or because our activities had actually become oppressive or exclusive and had led to people not finding Jesus, not being able to receive a welcome. So if you have expertise, you have ideas about how the church can do this effectively under the current circumstances, the leadership are all ears. If you don't know, and, and that's, that's probably most of us, we don't know yet, please pray because God's heart is that all nations should be able to meet with the living God. It was Jesus' desire that all people should come to know Father God, that all should receive his, um, his sacrifice and receive the benefits of his sacrifice upon the cross. That wasn't done just for us. And so God knows, God does know how we can do this. We need to be listening. And I'm, I guess I'm asking you as church together, can we commit to seek God and to pray and, and listen specifically for this? God, how do we stay uh, as a church that has an open door? How do we reach out? How can you prevent us, stop us from becoming insular, stop us from becoming gatekeepers? Um, excluding others when in fact your heart is always for those who are not yet part of the kingdom that's that's our desire that's God's desire I know so we need your expertise um, in that and your prayers Psalm 24 7 says lift up your heads O you gates and be lifted up you everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in our desire is that even though we're not meeting in a single building together, that as we meet in this virtual space, the King of Glory will come in. And that the King of Glory will come in not to overturn tables and take out a whip and drive out all the dreadful things that are happening, but that he will come in and know himself to be worshipped and adored and that there are people there from all nations, so from all walks of life, will be there. And that's what we're, we're working towards. And that's what we're asking the spirit to lead us into. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your actions in the temple that day are shocking, but they lead us to see the depth of emotion, the depth of passion that you have, not just for the holiness of your place, because you taught that actually it's not a place, but a person that is the temple, but your passion that all should be welcomed in, that none should be excluded, and your passion that your people should be those that speak truth, that act for justice, that love and show mercy. Lord God, I pray that you will remind us over and over again that that is our calling. And that even though we have such a challenge in front of us to know how to translate that into this new setup, this new scenario that we're living in, God, none of it surprises you. None of it. Um, 
makes you stop and ponder and wonder because you already know. So Lord, we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your guidance. We ask for your uh, leadership here. Show us how not to retreat into ourselves, but to reach out all the more. Show us new avenues and new opportunities so that more people, not fewer, more people will be able to have the opportunity to connect with you, to return to you, to be reconciled to their Father in heaven who made them and loves them and sent his son Jesus to die in their place. God, show us how to move forward in the mission of your church so you can be glorified and your kingdom built and extended here on earth. We pray that we will be, um, we will be ready and willing to step up and take on the challenges that you give us, knowing that we do this in your strength and equipped by you and accompanied and empowered by your Holy Spirit. Teach us, show us, guide us and lead us and be glorified, King of glory, in the life of this church. We pray for your name's sake. Amen.